Hello, and welcome to Smooth Scaling, the podcast from Insight Partners that helps revenue leaders scale their software companies at every stage of growth. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan, and today I'm speaking with Sean Gilliam, Vice President of Customer Experience at Netscope, a cybersecurity platform that helps organizations apply zero trust principles to protect data. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Well, we've entered what I like to refer to as the chit-chat-free zone, so we're going to dive right in. As you reflect on your career, what's a critical initiative that stands out in your mind as having had a major impact on revenue performance? Yeah, it's a, it's a great and tough question, Jeremy. Going out and getting customers is certainly critical to the growth of any particular company, uh, but retaining the customers is, is equally important, and at least in my philosophy. And so I went through the things that I've most recently been focused on, and, and one of the particular elements that I'm most proud of is the implementation of our value realization framework at Netscope. And people often ask me, why do you think that is the the pivotal or one of the kind of crown jewels of what we've done? And the importance of being able to change a conversation from a transactional or commodity type of conversation where you're checking a box and really having a conversation with all stakeholders, irrespective of the level that they might sit in within your customer base and articulate the value that, that you are able to present and deliver for the customer is super critical to the renewal and upsell motions that the sales team wants to be able to have. One of the contextual questions I have is a lot of people in the SaaS industry might have the title of customer success. You have the title of customer experience. Why that title as opposed to the, the CS that's often a product or a marketing concept? You're you're clearly focused on the on the customer success experience. So so you know why why that title at Netscope? It, it was one that I gave a lot of thought into. And, and the reason why there is a delineation there is because customer success is one portion of the customer experience. So you've got the business alignment and being able to talk through the impact and, and alignment with our customers and their objective uh, objectives or goals, but also there's the technical success. And it becomes really important when you have a highly complex, highly technical service or product, you hear an adage oftentimes in sales that you get reduced to the person you sound like. And so being able to have representatives on the post-sale side of the house that can align with the technical stakeholders and speak their language is just as important as it is to have business alignment with the executive stakeholders that you'd end up getting out of the customer success function. I found in highly technical companies, they'll not necessarily even have CSMs. They'll have technical account managers, TAMs, which is like a CSM, but with a, a much, typically a much higher technical proficiency. Is, is that how you operate at Netscope? We actually have three particular roles. We have the CSM, which you're familiar with. It's the alignment of business outcomes uh, and value. We have the technical account manager, which is a paid-for resource here at Netscope where we get alignment on the proactive uh, engagement with our customers, understanding success plans and ensuring that technical delivery aligns with the the plans that we have developed to ensure that we're progressing down the customer journey. We also have this notion of a technical success manager. And, And the technical success manager is, think of it as a kind of a proactive support mechanism, uh, focus on the how-to, right? Oftentimes people see technical support as a break fix, but because when you're dealing with a very technical product, you'll often have customers having questions around, well, how do I do this thing? So best practices, how to's, creation of content to help facilitate the progression down the customer journey on a technical basis is what the TSMs are focused on. So a little bit of a nuance, but certainly we're seeing significant value out of that particular function and getting that velocity out of the customer's journey. 
So thinking about those those four post-sale roles, CSMs, technical account managers, technical success managers, tech support, I presume you also have account managers, but thinking about those, who's principally involved with the value realization framework and executing on that piece? I'd like to say everyone is, right? And that is true. When you've got your AC and you've got kind of the, the single throat to choke, as they say, the, the CSM is without a doubt the core person responsible for ensuring that the customer is extracting value out of that particular relationship. Well, let's let's peel the onion a little bit. We said what this thing is, or at the very high level, we, we gave it a name, but, but what actually is the value realization framework? Yeah, thanks for letting me dig into it too. It seems fairly obvious when you think about the value realization framework. Sales goes through emotion. Oftentimes what was happening is that you go through this particular sales process, the deal gets done, and then it gets flipped over to professional services or the post-sale side of the house for the realization of that particular vision. What we were finding was that that particular transition wasn't happening. The value realization framework starts with the concept that you get alignment with sales first. Why did the customer buy? Right? What are the criteria that they're expecting to achieve over what period of time? Uh, we've got the five Qs is what we call it. The, the who are the stakeholders? Why do they buy? Why net scope? When are you expecting value? And how are they gonna measure value? Right? Those are the kind of the five core questions that we ask. And once we ask those questions, we then get that confirmation once the handoff is done from the post-sale side of the house to ensure that our understanding of what we got from the sales team is in fact accurate with what the customer is expecting, right? That's the core notion, because if you can start with that solid foundation, then everything else becomes, you kind of got got the answers to the test, right? So it makes it a much easier proposition. So that's that value alignment phase. The second part is the value delivery. And I mentioned the, the idea of creation of success plans, but the, the, that is so critical because what you've now done is you created a schedule that you can hold the customer accountable to. It could be quarterly or biannual or annual, or whatever the case might be. And at each particular check-in, we are redetermining or re, reconfirming that that is in fact what we want to, to do. Customer has the ability to pivot, right? Something's happened in their business and they want to put number three back up to number one and number one is now down to number seven. So that type of value delivery allows for us to not only ensure that we're tracking along the path that we've articulated at the onset, but we also have that ability to pivot. And then at the very end, as we are concluding the delivery value confirmation, if I were to say any particular element was the most important, having the conversation to ensure that the customer not just sees and experience, but they confirm that what they are feeling aligns with what their expectation is at a minimum. Hopefully we've We've exceeded their expectations, but at a bare minimum, we've delivered at what their expectations were, because when you can do that, then that renewal becomes more of a motion, a transaction, as opposed to a completely brand new sales exercise. I was trying to read up on what you guys do, and I read about this concept of sassy, which uh, is not the sassy I think of. Uh, it's it's <laughs> secure access service edge, and I am not a cybersecurity expert, but why I'm setting this up is... You talked about one of your five cues, your five questions, that one of this is measurable value. So how do I get from secure access service edge to measurable value? That's the question I have. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a big question. We might have to schedule an entire different conversation to, to go through all the nuts and bolts. But let me see if I can touch the high point. So when you think about SaaS, you think about this, uh, you had talked about secure service edge, and, and that's really what you're talking about. It's, it's this notion where You've got a set of security capabilities that ensure the safe delivery and transference and access to websites, 
to SaaS applications and think of this as your, you know, your salesforces.com or any of the other applications that you might use that are hosted in the cloud, or even maybe some of our customers develop their own private apps. Your customers, their most important resource or assets for people. And the very second thing is the data that they have. And so ensuring that you've got not only visibility, but controls over how that data is moving into and out of the cloud and into the public internet, it becomes really important. Those are the types of things that we want to make sure that we're guarding against for our customers and on their behalf. We think of value delivery in three kind of core ideas. The vision of cloud really centers around this idea that I can be more elastic and I can be, uh, a customer can get better cost efficiencies by moving off of the traditional data center, big servers and that type of stuff. You move into the cloud and you're realizing cost savings. There's agility that you get in there. And then there's also compliance requirements, right? And then I'd probably say the last little element would be workforce agility, right? As we move into this post-pandemic world, the demographic of your employee base changes, right? Where you thought before everyone was going to be sitting in a big old office, that model has changed where you've got this hybrid workforce. And so you need to be able to have a tool or a platform that really allows your customers, our customers, to be able to go out and impose these controls and, and provide this visibility irrespective of where their workforce is. So they want to move to the cloud. They want to make sure they have compliance. They want to make sure they have workforce agility. How do those things become become measurable in a way that you can get into executive business review, right? We have situations where the tangible, when you're talking about cost, it, that's an easy mathematic process, right? I, if I move all of my servers and I decommission my data center and I get into the cloud, I, I'm expecting that there's a return on investment over X period of time. And what we do is we ensure that they're able to make that transition. I can say, I've delivered this service and we've supported this number of people and we can move into the cloud for these, these particular applications. That's an easy process. What becomes a little bit more challenging is when you start talking about workforce agility. How do you translate workforce agility? And oftentimes that deals with productivity. And if I can go through and ensure that I've already done the integrations and have the security constraints in place, I can turn that service on faster. That becomes a little bit tougher to be able to quantify in terms of security, but it is it is absolutely a goal. Compliance is a little bit easier. It's it's kind of like insurance, right? You've got to be able to have it. And, and so that particular conversation where when you're talking about compliance is, the, you've got a healthcare or a financial institution that has to be able to go and do this thing that being able to spin up or spin down quickly to meet those requirements. Uh, once again, it's a, it's a checkbox or binary. Do you have it or don't you? I suppose there's also some aspect of we prevented this number of security attacks or we prevented this much data because a, a customer list, for example, might have enormous value that is not measured in the bits that it's, that it's stored in. There are tons of what we call bad actors out there. And, and every day, every week, every month, they're getting smarter and smarter and smarter. And so we have to continue to get smarter and smarter and smarter. And we have really direct conversations with our customers to say, hey, yeah, this is this is what we've been able to do. Rarely are you able to go and illustrate kind of the impact. Or these are the files that we prevented from being exfiltrated or, or transferred outside of the, the corporate infrastructure. The, the challenge, as you mentioned, Jeremy, is what value do you put on that? With any new initiative like the value realization framework, you come in and there's a whole bunch of existing CSMs. You also need to hire new ones. I'm very curious about the change management and training aspect of how you rolled that out. 
any change management, as you said, it, the three kind of levels or, or levers that I look at when, when I think about making a change is how much can I control, right? How much of it is within my particular purview? What's the expected impact that I can get out of making this change? And what's the effort that goes into it? And, and so when I, when I look at this particular effort, I, I had complete control, I uh, had high degree of impact. It was something where I felt as though you know, I had kind of that full checklist where right? I could do all three of those things. And so then you go through this exercise of, all right, how do I create the content, which we did uh, collectively with an amazing leadership. You know, I think one of the things we didn't talk about is making sure you pick the right people as a part of your team to help kind of push and evolve the, the way that we think and not being satisfied with what we do today, but continue to push that envelope. And so I have an amazing team that helped kind of crystallize what this thinking was, creating content and then creating this kind of methodology, I'm able to go in uh, and package up, not just for the CSM and the, and the CX organization, but as you're having EBCs and EBRs and, and even just one-off executive level sponsorship conversations, having this value realization framework packaged up so that that conversation that's being had when we're not in the room can be effective as well. That's why it's so important to have this framework in place. Yeah, when I've deployed things in the past, and I've typically worked more on the pre-sales enablement side, I always found piece one was aligning the executives in the company. And then I always spent an inordinate amount of time working on the first line managers, right? Because they make or break the success of these types of initiatives. And then, right, having the, the individual reps role play. And because we had certified the managers, the managers then certified their reps. Did you deploy in any of those best practices as you were rolling this out? Absolutely. Getting kind of a train the trainers type of approach is absolutely the, the direction that we use. My organization spans uh, 20 different countries and what seems to be 100 different time zones. Clearly, it's not 100, but it's quite a few time zones, right, that you have to end up managing. Getting closer and being able to provide not just kind of the standardized concept, but being able to give the managers also the ability to regionalize the delivery right? Is it, if nothing else, changing a Z to an S, right? As you're going through and making it more relevant and receptive to that particular region, I think it's super critical. You also have that ability to kind of make it a little bit more intimate, right? When you try to do a one to many and, and miss that middle step where you're training the trainer, you don't have that opportunity to get feedback because I don't have all the answers. And we continue to hire amazing people at every single level. You just hit on something that I've actually wondered about in the CS world. I've been listening to a bunch of podcasts lately from the Hunters and Unicorn podcast that they go through the PTC Blade Logic story, where they really were some of the original folks codifying processes for enterprise selling. A lot of times, CSMs are wired to serve and less aggressive, at least stereotypically, compared to new business I'm curious, do I have an incorrect picture of what CSMs are like? And then when those great CSMs get promoted to manager, how do you keep them out of the ruinous empathy zone and into the radical candor zone? Yeah, it's it's challenging because I think that CSMs stereotypically are seen as kind of the catch-all. The folks are very amenable, wanting to please, and, and ultimately, oftentimes, extending themselves beyond what the definition of the role would be. I love that as a disposition, but in practice, oftentimes what that means or translates into is inefficiencies. They can't deliver based on uh, what the ask is, and it's disappointment either on their side or on the customer side. And so 
the idea of radical candor and the idea of have backbone is the idea that A, we give our team a safe space to provide feedback. B, we set an expectation of a culture where that feedback isn't just wanted, but is expected. And then the third thing that you have to do is you have to put the CS team in a place where they're seen as the value that they are, which is they're not the administrators and, and the folks that are just kind of moving along a particular process. And it's not an easy job. I, I dare say it's tied with support as one of the hardest jobs in the business because you have so many different things that you have to do. I really love the perspective on elevating the role of the CSM. And uh, in particular, just, you know, not just saying deliver more value, but giving them a tool and a framework and a process to follow with the with the value realization framework that actually helps them do that, do that job more effectively. I really appreciate that you have the obligation to dissent culture whenever I'm I'm talking about something, because sometimes I can speak with conviction and, and I don't want people to think I have any kind of positional authority. I often explicitly and I do it multiple times a day, like state, you have an obligation to dissent. And then the other thing I do is I say whether or not this is a strong opinion, strongly held, right? All the way through to loose opinion, loosely held. So they sort of know where I stand and how much I'll fight back. Sean, thanks so much for being on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Smooth Scaling Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, or tell a friend. For more information about the topics we discussed today, check out the Insight Partners blog at insightpartners.com slash blog. See you next time.